0: Welcome back to the Girl of Gen Z podcast. Today, I have an online video call episode with guest Connor Malboeuf. Before we get into the episode, if you guys are listening on the podcast app, if you could give this episode five stars and subscribe, that would be much appreciated. And if you're listening or watching on YouTube, if you could hit the subscribe button over there, the notification bell and the thumbs up button, I will forever be grateful. Now, without further ado, let's get on into the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Girl of Gen Z podcast. I'm your host, Clarissa, and today I have a special guest by the name of Connor Malbuff on the podcast. He is a writer, producer, and comedian that is Canadian, but is currently living in LA. How are you, Connor? Welcome to the show.
1: I am good. Thank you so much for having me during this crazy world we're living in right now.
0: <laughs> I know. it's This is like wild, absolutely wild. Never did I think that we would be living through this. Like, we're gonna be in history textbooks because of this. It's like the pandemic. one
1: time, the one time I wish I still was in university living with six people in a dorm, I would have loved that. Because right now I live alone and I'm just like talking to my plants at this point. <laughs> How many plants do you own? Too many, too many. I got two over here. I got like 20 in the other room.
0: That's hilarious, but you're holding up okay?
1: I'm doing good, no complaints. I mean, I got food. I, am I, you know, I have a shell, I have shelter and you know, I'm, I'm good. No complaints.
0: You got the essentials, which is important. I'm good. <laughs> awesome. So we're going to dive deep into your, well, maybe not deep, but into your childhood. And then we'll go through, you know, some of your schooling, how you got to the position or role that you are in right now. Um, so first things first, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, have any siblings?
1: Yeah, I, well, I grew up in a small town um, outside of Toronto. I don't even know if it's small anymore. Uh, Aurora, Ontario, which is, I would say, 30, 30 minutes outside of Toronto. So, you know, close enough where you can still go to concerts, but far enough where you're still the only gay person in your high school. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, things, are, things were good. I mean, I grew up fairly, fairly good, no complaints. I mean, the odd homophobic remark here and there. I'm obviously... Um, Uh, I, I am gay, so I, I, focus a lot of that in my, in my comedy and in my work, uh, and I've been doing activism my entire life in terms of LGBT rights, environmental rights, um, and I, yeah, so I grew up outside of Toronto, and I went to Aurora High School, and then I went to Western University, which is in London, and then from London, I went to Boston for university there for, to do my Master's, and then from Boston to LA, and now here we are. That's like a very spark note version of my life, um, but things are things are doing things are good, and I can't complain. I'm I'm doing stand up regularly. I produce and write. Um, I work for a production company here in LA too. So yeah, things are good. Things are good.
0: Amazing, amazing. So, what were you like as a child?
1: Oh my God, I, I was I was very loud and extroverted and annoying to many people. Um, you know, my I always used to say my sister you know, I would, I would run up to her in the bathroom and try to do like dance moves and singing and charades and all of that kind of stuff, because I was just longing for, you know, I was in, I was born, I believe to be an entertainer and and to make people laugh. So um, to have that, you know, growing up was, was hard because you're, you're looking for outlets and you're not sure where to go. And, you know, I I found myself kind of dabbling in, in theater, but I wasn't an actor, quote unquote. And I, I didn't like reading lines and you know, stand-up comedy was so unfamiliar to me because I wasn't surrounded by it as a kid. But you know what? I was I was really into politics. I was into student government. I did all of that stuff. Um, I was, like, the prom council president, which was, like, the best because you could just basically put all the people that bullied you in the worst table in the corner by the bathroom. Uh, and, yeah, I was just, like, very, very involved and, like, didn't give two shits about what anyone thought about me and would just kept pushing forward
0: good that's so so good to hear um was your high school a catholic school public school was it a small school
1: it was like a normal size school i would say like you know a thousand a couple thousand people i don't really know what a normal high school is no it was very public i w- i'm not religious in the slightest and i've never really been surrounded by religion my entire life so no it was it was public um both genders you know people of all walks of life yeah
0: Wow. Wow. And what was your deciding factor to go away to school? And how was that decision made
1: to go to, to, to Western? Yes. Um, well, I mean, I, I always wanted, I mean, you know, if you're growing up in the suburbs of Toronto, it's kind of instilled in your brain that you have to go to university. And at that point I, I never wanted to do stand up comedy. I wanted to be like the next Ryan Seacrest, um, with a little more gumption and, uh, I, uh, I basically was like, well, I can either go to Western or Ryerson. I didn't get into Ryerson, so that, that'll do it. And then I was like, you know what, I'll go to Western. I did a collaborative program uh, between Western University and Fanshawe College. So I got like the, you know, the hands-on, on radio, talking, you know, making people laugh, doing production. And then I did the theoretical side, which was like yawn fest at Western, which was just like a lot of writing, which wasn't my style, but the extracurriculars were amazing. Um, but yeah, I was always, it was never like, I'm not going to university. It was always, I'm going to university, just which one. Um, but I'm so glad I did.
0: Were your parents, like, did they push you in any certain direction? Were they pretty strict with post-secondary education?
1: Yeah, it was something we never really talked about, but I definitely knew that I needed to go to university. And I definitely knew that university, in their eyes, was seen as more prestigious than college. So that was something we subconscious, like, I just subconsciously knew that if I were to say, go to like George Brown or Humber, they would see that as lesser than, which is not, which is not factual at all. Um, But that was, that was definitely something that we had the conversation about and was like, you must, you know, you kind of have to go to university to get an education. You know, if this whole entertainment dream doesn't, you know, work out. The funny thing is I studied entertainment in university so you know all i was doing was studying to be the best of the best so if it didn't work out i didn't really have any other backup plan and, uh, <laughs> yeah where did your parents go to university they did they fell in love at in guelph, at guelph oh
0: university. wow yes
1: yeah, yeah, and yeah they did, both met there they're like the epitome of the like university sweethearts the jock meets the like quirky geeky woman and then they fall in love and then their parents don't agree and then they they make babies
0: (laughs) it's like the movies
1: yeah no kidding right
0: so you mentioned you had a sister is she older or younger
1: she's older she's like almost 30
0: okay so there's a big gap between us okay okay did she go away to school like was that uh did that influence you in any way when you were making your choices
1: well, she was kind of, like, she went to Ryerson for a bit, and that didn't work out, and then she went to OCAD and did a four-year, you know, Bachelor of Art. She was, she was an artist, so she was, like, into fine art. She did really well there. You know, some of her, some of her textile work got into Paris Fashion Week. Like, she was really, really doing well, so I always had this, like, idea of, well, she's doing art. She's doing really creative stuff, and she was always doing Cirque and Silks, um, which was, like, a circus act on top of that, so I was always surrounded subconsciously, whether I knew it or not, um, with this essence of performance and entertainment. And she definitely, I mean, by seeing that, it kind of clues into your mind that maybe, you know, this is actually a viable thing to do. And seeing my parents support her made, you know, well, they have to support me now, so.
0: Yeah, for sure. Do you have any other siblings?
1: No, it's just us. It's just, just us. Just you, I too. mean, at times, my sister is so older than me. I mean, she's, like, seven years older. So at times, she feels like my mom. Like, it's just, like, because we don't have that, like, you know, shoot the shit vibe that most siblings have. Just because we've, you know, when I was in middle school, she was in high school. When I was in high school, she was in university. When I was in university, she was, you know, with a boyfriend and owning a house. <laughs> so it was just, like, we were in completely different points just- of our life. Of exactly. When I liked St. Vincent and she, she no longer liked St. Vincent. It like, we were just like we were constantly, you know, when I fell in love with indie music, she was no longer into indie music. It was, I was like, I can't win.
0: That's so, so funny. That's so funny. So, when you decided to make your move to go to Western University, you all obviously already touched on it being a collaborative program. Um, I know because I was an MTP for a little bit too. Did you? How did you narrow down what stream? Because I know that, so MTP is media theory and production, as everybody knows. And then there was the different streams being radio, television, uh, broadcast journalism, interactive media. Maybe I'm missing one.
1: Yeah, there was like graphics, intera- there was interactive media, radio, TV, and uh, journalism. There were four.
0: Yeah, so what helped you narrow that down? Like how did you know you wanted radio, not TV?
1: You know what? What's funny is, that, well, the TV section was just way too... behind Behind the scenes, editing, not my thing. So it came down to between journalism and radio. And I talked to everyone in the media theory production program that was in first year that was applying to second year. And I went around and I said, which one is each one doing individually? And my odds were better with radio. That was why. Okay. I basically looked at it It was like, I do not want to be in MIT for four years. You know, maybe journalism is my number one, but if I get radio, I'm still in the program. I have a you know, a spot in this program, I'd be happy with either or. So I'm going to apply for the one that I know I'm going to get. It was more, it was a strategic move over like me wanting radio over journalism. And uh, picking between the two now, it it was a good decision because I learned the production and I learned how to like use Adobe Audition, use Premiere, use all of that stuff. But also if I wanted to still be on radio, laugh, talk, it was more improv, it was like comedy on the air. And that was a much, much more my style, doing talk shows. Whereas journalism was just like, you know, you're reading off of a, a script that the Associated Press wrote for you. Like that's not my thing, and uh, never has been. So looking back on it, it was the right decision. But the decision was, being, was made solely because I could get into it.
0: <laughs> gotcha, okay, so you applied for both? You were able to do so?
1: No, I only applied for radio, but okay. I looked at it and I was like, less people are applying for radio and my grades in some of the classes were horrendous. So I was like, you know what, let's, let's throw it in the radio. At least I know we'll get in. How are your grades for like the most part? They were fine. They were, f- oh, I was so bad at poli-sci. So <laughs> bad. I it was like getting fifties on every exam. I was like, I can't win. I'm like, <laughs> I know, I know every Senator in the U.S. Supreme court. I like, I know all of this stuff. But when it translates to like, you know, Socrates' decision in BC eighteen hundred, you know, relates to this constitution. i was like, right over my head. So there were some classes I took that I just like regret beyond belief. But um, my media classes I was doing well in. It was just all of the all of the poly sci, and I took this awful, awful earth science online class about planets and i just i was so bad bad.
0: (laughs) was that um in year one when you had to pick one of those sciencey courses
1: i think so it was like mandatory i was like what do you mean i didn't even take math in grade 10 (laughs) now you're expecting me to now you're expecting me to know the like oxygen level on saturn are you nuts i want to i want to literally i want to interview lizzo for a living why is this going to (laughs) relate
0: yeah I agree with you on that a lot it's I get having the like mandatory courses you have to take but when it completely doesn't relate to your field and you'll never have to use that info again yeah I'm I'm totally on board with that totally on board with that well and
1: then you find out later you find out down the road in your in your university career when you meet with the counselors that you didn't even need to take the science if you got into MTP so I was like you know well that was just a waste I shouldn't be anyways but that's yeah. crazy. <laughs> the things they don't tell you. The things they don't tell you. Um,
0: when I was deciding what school to go to, when I was going away, um, the MTP program was my last uh, offer I was waiting for. Because it was such a competitive program to get into
1: compared to yeah, MIT. It was like only 40 trying- of us.
0: Yes, yes. And um, I remember, so when I got in, during first year, they take – Um, they take the MTP people to Fanshawe to do like a little tour of the place. And then they had the speakers talk about each program and you were one of them that was on the stage. I don't know if you remember. Yeah.
1: I don't. Oh, like in that, in that kind of little amphitheater room, that little dark. Yes. Yes. yes, I remember.
0: I was, I don't remember
1: meeting you, but I remember that day.
0: Yes, I didn't come up to you or anything, but I I just remember you being on the stage talking about your program. So, um I was already having the dis- like this back and forth decision of dropping out of Western and just you know, pursuing the Fanshawe, the college portion. And when um before I did, I was like I kind of want to go to this this tour, this, everyone talks about their program and see, see what it's like. And as soon as I heard, you know, the passion in a lot of your voices of each stream, whether that was radio or television, I was like, this is where I want to be. I don't know why I'm at Western. I know you're getting the degree and the diploma, but like I can see myself here and succeeding here and developing my skills here. I can't, I can't see all that happening at Western.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I so- know. And that's a a decision that a lot of people had to make. Like, is it worth, I'm excited. Yeah, you get the diploma, but you still have to do the years of writing these long essays about who God knows what. But yeah, and I saw a lot of my really good friends, you know, either drop out or stay in MIT or leave and go to Toronto. And yeah, it's tough. But you know what? The whole point of university is to figure out what you're good at, what works, what doesn't work what you're bad at, what you love, what you hate. It's like getting a little, it's like a charcuterie board of everything. You just kind of get to try, try everything and, and really pick what you're, what you're passionate about. Because if you're not, at the end of the day, if you're not passionate about what you're doing, it's not worth it. You know, you're not going to sit at a desk. You might, some people love sitting at a desk for not from nine to five, but you know, some people hate it. Pick what you're passionate about because everything else is not worth it.
0: Yeah, yeah. No. You just cut up for a quick second. There we go. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Oh, I was going to ask, what was your living situation like with being between both schools? I found that a couple of the girls that were in my class, it was always a constant struggle with finding a house with their roommates and the, the busing situation in the winter. They'd miss the bus and they wouldn't come and come late. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I was fortunate. I had a car, so I never had to. I know. Ne- I mean, I I was a janky ass car. Let me tell you, it wasn't anything fancy. <laughs> I mean, the thing, the thing barely got out of the driveway when it snowed. Nonetheless, <laughs> I had a car, and I was, I was part of Western TV and, and, you know, all of the media outlets on Western's campus. I was much more a Western student who went to Fanshawe than a Fanshawe student who went to Western. So all of my friends, everyone I knew was at Western. So I stayed in that area, um, like, literally right near the bridge, right near in London, right near the bridge. um, And I commuted, you know, 15, 20 minutes. It's funny, now I look back at it, I'm like, I would have taken that commute in a heart. I live in Los Angeles now, and I'm driving 30, 40 minutes to get, you know, two miles. And you're going, come on. And I was complaining about driving 15 minutes while going 40, you know. So you look back and you just laugh. But I lived, I lived right by the gates. And I loved it because I could walk to class. All my friends were in that area. You know, my neighbor was my, my, literally my best friend. So I was always walking over to their house and uh, there was kind of a street. There was a street where I lived and all of them were the media students. So we were, you know, it was a party. We like, you know, we drank on the roof and shot the shit. We were right near Brockdale. It was like the epitome of the university experience.
0: Yes. Yes. It's nice that you had your classmates and friends that were in the same program too. I find that that helps and everyone kind of just gets each other so much more. Yeah. So the next point I want to bring up is Western TV. Cause obviously you're a part of that for quite some time. So I want to ask what piqued your interest in joining the club and the role you kind of played throughout.
1: Well, yeah, so I was, I was a volunteer in first year cause I didn't get a job as the first year reporter. Um, and, you know, I was, I was like devastated. I, I remember in my first, as a freshman, I applied for like student council, Western TV, I, like I applied for everything and I didn't get anything. Like I didn't get anything. And uh, then in second year I finally was like a freelance reporter and I got, I did a couple of videos and I saw like huge potential in Western TV. And at that point it was kind of like, you know, every year is different because it depends on who's running the club. So, Some years are phenomenal. Some years are horrible. Just like, you know, politics. You know, some years you have the best president ever. And then some years, you know, do you even have one? (laughs) Um, And uh, so, yeah. So in in second year, I was like, you know what? Maybe when when I'm going into my third year, I'll I'll apply for, like, the executive producer role. Like, maybe, which was unheard of for someone my age to apply for that role. Because, A, I hadn't even been part of the club for two years. And, you know, I was going to be going up against seniors. And uh, going into my third year, I applied Um, and it was, it was, it was in a weird limbo period because the Gazette had just kind of accumulated Western TV as an asset. And I had the cool opportunity to lead that charge when I did get the job. So the Gazette took over Western TV. They hired me. Uh, The only reason I was hired was because it was the, the panel of the people hiring were, three people that did not know any of the applicants. If I had applied and it was the same old recruitment process, the girl that was the shoe in would have won and she would have got it. But so basically I got the position. I was thrilled beyond belief. I was excited to work with people. And then everyone quit because they found out it was me, um, which, you know, I don't, think I, I don't think many people know that, but. How did you take that? For, I mean, it was hard. I took over Western TV. I'm all excited about this, you know. We already have these strong leaders that are a part of it. You know, everyone wanted this girl to win. And then when I got it, you know, I was, my intentions were always good. I had never burned a bridge. I had never done anything wrong to these people. But at the end of the day, if if a newbie comes out of nowhere and, and threatens their whatever, people get scared and people get pissed off. So everyone quit. I had to hire an entirely new editing team and an entirely new reporting team. But that was the best Thing Western TV could have ever had because it was young, fresh blood, very diverse, mostly women, um, people that were passionate that weren't getting a voice on the original Western TV because of politics and, you know, nepotism and whatever it might be. So it was good. Like everyone in that, in that, in my third year, in that season was brand new and just was so excited to just like, get on camera, get behind the camera, learn. And then, I applied again in the fourth, in my fourth year and I got it again. So that was exciting because now I can build upon what I'd done. And then we rebranded Western TV and we became the number one, you know, student video outlet in Canada, which was like we were beating schools that have like top notch journalism programs. So that was amazing because I was like, wait, what? We're beating the people that are paying $7,000 to go to school. And uh, yeah, and then we just kept building on the brand and our subscribers kept growing and our videos kept growing. And I had an amazing support team and, and, and amazing leadership and reporters and, and that was that. And I'm, I mean, West, my Western University experience wouldn't be nothing without Western TV. And it, I wouldn't be in LA without it.
0: That's crazy. So you had to apply for, reapply for the same position you had year three and year four?
1: Yeah, but I mean, it was, I knew I was going to, it was just like, you kind of had to still send your, you still had to apply, even though you were going to, you were going to get it.
0: Got it. Got it. So what kind of responsibilities did you hold as such a, like holding such a high position? I feel like it's a lot of commitment on top of school.
1: Yeah, no, it was like, I mean, Shannon, who was my assistant coordinator, we were working till like 10 PM, 11 PM on, on campus every day. And I would get up hella early, like 630 to get to Fanshawe for my classes. Then I would come back at around dinner time, do my night classes. And then we would, you know, we'd be film. And I would sometimes go to Fanshawe and then I would have to come back to Western, film a video, then go back to Fanshawe and then go back to Western. Then I would have to go to the off. It was insane. I was working like 15, 16 hour days for seven days a week. It was insane. And we were not, let me tell you, we were not getting paid much, Um, but we loved it. We loved, loved, loved it. And, you know, we were getting opportunities like that, like top, like we were getting interviews that E-Talk was getting, like some really top-notch celebs or opportunities. And, um, yeah, I mean, we, we were doing everything from the research to the outreach to the, um, you know, everything from transcribing to reporter workshops to hiring to, you know, re- editing everything, graphics. Thumbnails. There is so much that goes into one video. It's beyond belief. Just just to get the interview takes weeks, and then you have to you know prep the interview, research the interview, the questions, the editing. You know, the promotion of these videos. There's yeah. There's a lot that goes into it.
0: Right, right. So it's a good thing you had that car. Then now that I'm hearing about you going back and forth, back and forth, because I don't think the average student would be able to do that. But you had the means of transportation to have that flexibility
1: yes 100% and i didn't without the car I, it wouldn't work
0: yeah yeah there's no way unless you're going to pay for ubers which was an arm and a leg if you're going back and forth that many times a day
1: yeah and at that time uber had just come into london like it wasn't a big thing That okay. sound so old but it it wasn't a big thing like when i was in my fourth year you know ubers you would take it to the bar but in my first second even my third, we would take like the we would take like Ye- London yellow taxis to the, <laughs> to the bars. We would we have to we have to call them up. We'd have to call them up and say, "Hey, can you pick us up at whatever Med or wherever it was?"
0: That's so funny. Um, I also didn't know that the positions at Western TV are paid positions. Is it all positions?
1: No, just the just the producer position. So the executive producer, um, the assistant producer, and the editors. The people that actually edit the videos. Uh, The reporters get little stipends. So if, you know, if your videos do really well and you're in a lot of them and there's, you know, extra money lying around, they'll give like, you know, 50 bucks. You killed this video. Good work. But not much.
0: Okay. Okay. Sorry. So you cut out for the editors portion. The editors got paid as well, you said?
1: Yeah. So the executive producers, the assistant producer and the editors all got paid. And then the reporters got like a little stipend of 50 bucks if their video okay. exceeded a certain amount of views.
0: Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that makes sense then. Um, so what opportunity did that lead you leaving school? Cause you said that you wouldn't be where you are now without it.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's only so much essays on a resume gets you. I mean, yeah. what are you going to like, that doesn't mean anything, but if I can come out of it and say, you know what? I've interviewed everyone from the Prime Minister to Little Yachty. And you know, I know my shit. I've done, I've done, you know, 50 videos, garnered over a million views. I know how to edit, produce, write, whatever, blah, 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 blah. That is a billion times more valuable than you know, I took celebrity culture the class in, in fourth year. Like that means nothing to, to anyone. That's true. So I took, I took all the stuff I learned. I knew I wanted to end up in the States. I knew I wanted to be in LA or New York. How was I going to get there? And a huge component to my Boston University application was all the, all the prerequisite work and video work that I had submitted from Western TV. So all of that translated over. And I think genuinely one of the reasons I got into BU was because of all my portfolio work.
0: Okay. And how early did you have to apply for your master's? Like, did you see this advance enough that you were like, oh, okay, I need to film a couple more videos, or oh, I have my whole portfolio right here.
1: Yeah, no, no, like I I applied, you apply early, you apply at like Christmas of fourth year for Boston University, and I got in, I was driving home from, I was actually in Collingwood, I was driving from Collingwood to London, back to university uh, after Easter, after Easter weekend, and I had got the call that I I got admitted. So it, it and I got the call in April, They physically called you? They physically called me. Yeah. And it was, and I was by myself at like a rinky dink McDonald's (laughs) in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of nowhere. And I got the call and I literally, I shot my pants. I was like, I don't know if this is like, it is. And then you start questioning. You're like, do I, should I go to Boston? Should I go? Where's this going to take me? What do I do? Blah, 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 blah. And then obviously I accepted it, but yeah, it was insane.
0: Well, what was your other option if you didn't go to Boston? Did you have backup?
1: No, I was no, I was just gonna, I was gonna go start working. I was gonna go into. I had a lot of connections at that time. I was working on the Amazing Race Canada in April, and you know things could have continued on. You know, I could have worked on other show. I got a couple show offers for this. I actually got offered to work on a show called The Launch, which was a CTV show. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. They re- they reached out to me after working on Amazing Race, and then I couldn't do it because I was going to boxing. So things, there were opportunities there, but I was like, you know what? I can stay here, and there's only so much to grow in Toronto. There's only, like, you know, there's only one Ben Mulroney. There's only one <laughs> Ben Mulroney. There's not many positions. Um, you know, I, I'd rather work my way up and just, you know, give this thing a, a kick-ass shot than me just sit back and say, what if, what could have been?
0: Right, right, what was the program, the master's program called?
1: It was called Media Business Ventures. So it was like an immediate science and it was a master's in science. Don't ask me how it was a master's in science. I, I to date did not do one thing scientific, <laughs> but uh, the program got me a visa and it got me to where I am. So I am forever grateful.
0: For sure. For sure. So I want to touch on your YouTube channel a little bit. So when did you start your channel and how did you find your genre, your niche audience?
1: Oh, I mean, I'm finding my niche audience still to date. I don't know. (laughs) I, uh, I am always evolving. I started my YouTube channel the summer I finished university because I was doing all these videos for these other outlets. And then I came, I came out of them and then I was like, well, well, shit, all these subscribers I helped earn are not even mine. <laughs> so uh, I was like, God damn it, I got to start all over. And I, I launched a YouTube channel. And I was I've always been very comfortable with improv and man on the street kind of interviews. So I really focused on doing a lot of those at the beginning. And then, you know, fast forward to today, I'm doing a lot of parodies. So taking popular Netflix shows, Hulu shows, whatever it might be, and you know, actually dressing up as the character, writing the material. Yeah, I mean, that's where I've gotten most of my success is either parodying like, you know, Shawn Mendes or, um, you know, I just did a Love is Blind parody, which did really, really well. So things like that, you jump on a trend, you're, if you love the show and you're, I love writing and you're willing to write absurd, crazy things that make the perfect parody um, so my, yeah, my, my niches and my genre is changing every, every day. And I, I post a lot of my stand-up clips there too. Um, but most most of the subscribers and fans I've gotten are from just doing parodies and taking really huge pop culture moments and putting my own spin on them.
0: Did you start your YouTube channel after Western TV or like in the middle of that? Correct. Like, how did you start? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And jumping back real quick um, when you're at Western TV and you're recording things, like, didn't you go to Queens for one of the Hoco or St. Patty's or something? Did you have to get that stuff kind of approved by the school? Were you like, okay, crew, we're going this weekend. Like this is what's going on. <laughs>
1: well, you know, it's funny you say that. Like when we, uh, when we wanted to go to Queens university, we were like, they have the craziest St. Patrick's day. What more what's more perfect than going dressed up as western students to their st patrick's day you know it's just it's i looked at it, i was like this is the perfect thing it's you know the, the two schools hate each other it's competitive it's fun it's exciting and uh, i looked at it and i was like you know what i literally went up to my boss i begged her for 70 dollars for a howard johnson hotel room so that the crew and I could sleep there for the night and then go the next day. And we drove, we drove, we left the morning of from London. We drove all the way to Kingston, stayed at the Shafty ass motel called the, I think it was called the Hojo. I slept on the floor because I wasn't gonna let my, you know, I wasn't gonna let the reporters and, and the crew sleep on the, on the bed and sleep on the ground and me sleep on the bed. So I literally slept on the ground it was two two guys, myself and Connor, and this girl, Rebecca, who was a reporter. And we pulled up to this motel with all this camera gear. They thought we were filming a porno. I swear to God. And uh, <laughs> I mean, come on, it's looking a little... I was pulling up with all this gear. And uh, we get to we get to the Howard Johnson. We stay the night. It was like, sh- I mean, I woke up and I had some rash on me. I was like, this is not good. <laughs> like, this, is a, this is like a shafty-ass place. And then we filmed the video. And then... We finished at, say, 2 p.m., and then we had to drive all the way back to London because we had the little yachty interview. So it was just like always go, 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 go. But I never really asked for permission. I was always kind of just like, we're doing this? Cool. They always had, they, my editor always had to approve it. You know, they had to take out things that were a little too crude or, or not good or whatever it might be. But for the most part, everything was, uh, everything was just what we wanted to do.
0: I hope you put at least a sheet on the ground when you slept on that motel room floor.
1: I think we put a couple towels, a couple towels, but it's just, I was like, you don't want to take a ring light in that room. I don't even want to see what's on the walls there. (laughs) I mean, But these are things that I'm going to remember for the rest of my life. You know, when we were dirt poor, just wanting to make people laugh and I was willing to sleep on a motel ground for it. Like, huge. That was amazing. I was insane.
0: That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Um, so are you still kind of keeping up with YouTube?
1: Um, yes, I'm, I'm posting, I would say like every other week. That's for the most part what I'm doing. I, uh, I, I try to do more, but it's especially in this like weird pandemic, it's hard to be creative as much as you think it'd be easier. Like I keep thinking, Oh my God, I want to be posting more content. And I have all these ideas brewing in my head, but it's also hard. Like I film my videos with like a couple of my best friends here in LA and we do the makeup and we do the hair and the wigs, and, you know, some, some of the videos require a lot of, a lot of work. So it's hard without like a big team. And, you know, part of it, part of it, the reason I do it is because it's fun and because I love doing it. It's not as fun just, you know, filming it, editing it all by yourself, and then releasing it and hoping it's funny. So, you know, I try to release at least once or twice a month, three times a month, or whatever it might be.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, getting on to, I guess, the topic of the comedy, um, when, or I guess, how did you start your stand up? Like, how did you get into that?
1: Um, I got into well, I did. I was part of the stand up club at Western University, and I did a couple shows at the Spoke when I was there. So, in my college days, I did a couple shows. And then when I got to LA, you know, I met this girl at a ramen restaurant and she had, ho- she had hosted a show every month. And she said, do you want to do a set? And I said, hundred percent. So, and then I did this, my first, first comedy show in LA was in this rinky dink um, convenience store comedy club, like in the back alley of, in Hollywood. And uh, I did 10 minutes there. And it was just the most exciting thing ever. Like it was so much fun. I got to write all this new content. I hadn't done stand up in a while. I kind of forgot how much I loved it. And that really sparked me like, hey, this was good and I liked it and people were really receptive to it. I think I'm good at this. So I took all of that, you know, all those comedy shows I was doing like at like small little dive bars. In Hollywood like like with 50 people in the audience like even smaller and I was doing all these shows and and then it, re- it really hit off when um last year I uh, I got offered to open for Nikki Glazer on tour and that was like the biggest thing that the moment that was like what really you said yes okay sure I'll do it Um, and when I met her at, I met her at a, at a, at a party and, uh, basically we just, we hit it off and I asked her and she was very, very nice and said, yeah, why don't, why not? You're in LA this, you know, all the shows were in the LA area. So it worked out perfectly. And I am so incredibly grateful for everything she's done for me. And, uh, I mean, I'm 23 and say that I opened for like, you know, a Netflix sized, you know, insanely talented comedy icon is huge. And I will always remember that. That was like the moment when I was like, holy shit, this is real. And when I was doing these shows in front of like, you know, 500 to a 1000 people, and they're laughing, I'm like, wait, this is what me? I'm like, this is great. This is really great. And um, I was like, I think I can do this. I think I can actually make stand up comedy work. And then you, you think this moment is going to just you know, catapults you to like I'm going to be on Jimmy Fallon next week, and then of course none of that stuff actually happens. And uh, you know, you it's it's a constant grind. You know, I came off of those shows, and then you know, I did a couple shows here and there, but nothing really blew up after. I got a couple you know nods from agents and managers and stuff, but it wasn't anything like this happened, and now I'm going to be a star. It wasn't like that, um, but it was it was it gave me the first taste to hey. This is what I'm supposed to do.
0: That's insane. The amount of accomplishments you've had just within this last year and a half, like two. Insane. Um, congratulations on all of that. That's just like so Thank amazing you. to hear. Well, it
1: doesn't, it doesn't feel as... You're always trying to one-up yourself. and You're always trying to like, okay, cool. I, I did these shows with Nikki. And now, you know, when do I get to do it again? Or when, when you know... I, and then I started my own comedy show called Stand the Fuck Up which we do once a month and, um, you can believe that up. And, (laughs) and, uh, so I would, I've just been trying to, to do as much as I can and that's it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So how did you meet the person at the ramen restaurant, the woman, the girl you said?
1: Yeah. Through a friend, through a friend. I met, I met these, I met these two girls at a, uh, at a comedy show for Cola Scola. And, I met these two girls they were behind me we hit it off and then they invited me for ramen with their friend and then I met their friend and she's like you want to do a show and we did a show together and that's exactly the moment I was like oh cool I can do this. it's not that hard it's really hard but it's not that hard.
0: (laughs) That's crazy that's crazy so (laughs) what's the process of writing a bit for you like and how long does it take to write one?
1: You know what it's um every joke Every joke and every bit is completely different. I'll, I'll, a lot of the time, I'll write it with someone else. Um, but I'll take the concept and I'll put it on a voice note. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if I pass something really funny, you know, I'll voice note just like what I'm thinking about. You know, blah, 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 blah. blah, blah like, this could be good. Or, um, and I'll actually write it and speak it in my phone as if the way I want the joke to be heard. And then I'll come back to it a week. I'll come back to the voice memo a week later. And i and if I still laugh, then I know it's it's good. If I don't, I'll, I delete it. But a lot <laughs> of the time, I just I just write in the notes like I don't know like for uh, you know a, what's a joke recently I just wrote it was about um, I don't even know. But I, I'll just write like four points in my phone like it could be West Hollywood, you know, bars, gay people, you know, Shakira, and like I'll I'll be able to. Pull apart the joke from my memory on what I think it could be because a lot of the time jokes hit you at like when you're driving when you're in the shower when you're w- wherever you are The random and moments. Ha- exactly random moments and I just pull up my phone and I write like jot points and then I go back to it later and I write it in full sentence structure so that's that but it's different for each one like some jokes are come some of the jokes on my YouTube channel that I say and I get the most laughs are completely improvised. And then some of them are, you know, took weeks and weeks to write. So it's tough. And then you're, I'm very meticulous and, you know, is that funny? Oh, can we change this word? Or what if I do this? Or what if I add that? So it's tough. It's, there's not really a straight answer.
0: Okay, okay. And I guess with that answer, I guess you don't have an exact environment you need to be in. Like you, it's the random moments you said, like in the shower driving that you're just like, I gotta write this down now. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, the jokes never come to me at like a time where you want them to. Like, they cut never and paper. Come. I'm like, why can't the joke come when I'm actually, you know, at my desk when I want to write this? Uh, I, it always happens at a random time. A lot of the times, I'll go to comedy shows um, to see my friends or whatever, and I'll, you know, they'll be talk say they're talking about, um, you know, a, going to Canada, and then something will click in my brain about a joke that I wanna write about Canada. So sometimes just going to see other comedy shows gives you inspiration on jokes that you've had or experiences you've had that you forgot about, that you now wanna write about. So a lot of the time inspiration comes from just going to see other shows.
0: Right, so do you have some, cause you said if you if you come back it a week later and it's not funny, you delete it. Is there some that you kinda of leave and you're like, I still wanna play with that. Like I, I like this, but it needs something else. And then you go to this comedy show and you're like,
1: yeah, I, uh, there's, there's, tons, there's tons of jokes where I've, I've thought it's brilliant and then I have to workshop it maybe a hundred times. And a lot of the times I just throw them in the garbage because I'm like, oh, this sucks. Or, like, or I test it out. A lot of the times I'll do a bunch of comedy shows on at like little dive bars. like A couple of my friends have these very small shows where you just test out your material. And if it sticks in a room great if it doesn't i just usually toss it but it's hard because each each crowd is completely different i have some of my jokes hit the best when it's like old middle-aged white republican men but then sometimes i'll do sometimes i'll do this joke about like Cher and madonna in front of a gay crowd and they're like huh and i'm like what this is for you <laughs> But then I'll do it in front of like these old straight guys and they're like, because they've never heard anything like it. Being a comedian and also being gay is this weird kind of hybrid where, you know, you think your audience is for gay people, but it's actually not. It's actually for all the people that have never heard these stories before. And those people that you, you want to open their eyes to new experiences. Those are the the crowds that are so unaware and maybe a little more hesitant to you know queer culture those are the best crowds always
0: it seems so backwards that you have your target audience and then you get to your target audience you're like what that's the other way around I would have never thought
1: well like all of my parodies all the love is blind parodies and the tiger king parodies that I've done they were all like I go through my analytics on YouTube or just like the, the comments like say, you know, the love is blind, say out of the 500 comments that I got, I would say 98% were women, were straight women. So, I mean, you look at that and you're like, well, maybe I've been looking at this all wrong. (laughs) Maybe my audience isn't gay men because, you know, they're not that damn loyal when you want them to be. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like also because of your sexuality, you're able to play with so much more content. Like, do you feel like you have More creative juice than maybe someone who's
1: not. That's a good question. I don't. um, I would say it's a double-edged sword. It's really amazing at some time, at some points, because I can talk about things and get a little more, you know, raunchy or a little more experimental, experimental, experimental with things, and people get really shocked about it. And I'm almost sometimes seen it. Like I'll just talk about sex, for instance, and it'll be like, what? Like, it's like this shocking thing to a lot of people when, you know, Dave Chappelle's been talking about his penis for 20, 30, 40 years. Why aren't we getting shocked about that? You know, Michelle Wolf's been talking about her vagina for 10 years. We're not getting mad about that. But (laughs) gay men can't talk about sex without people going, hmm, interesting. And it's like, so I feel like I get away with a lot more in terms of things. And I get to be experimental but a lot of the time it's very limiting because you're seen as that gay comic or you know oh he's he's very funny for a gay guy and it's like no I'm funny period you know I don't say you're you're a funny woman or you're funny for a woman you know that's not that's not how we do it so
0: yeah yeah so what was it like going from an audience of 50 to like going on tour and whatever having 500 to 1000
1: oh my god it was the most incredible experience, but the most nerve wracking thing ever. And I was the host of the show. So I would go out and do, you know, 10 minutes and then I would introduce each comic, you know, Nikki's opener and then, and then Nikki. So it would be, I mean, you're literally, these are shows where there's a curtain. Like I'm used to shows where the comedy, the comedians run through the audience and then you, you know, it's small. So you see them come up. These were shows where there was like a backstage, and there were curtains and then there was a man introducing me. And then I was like, where's he coming from? And then you just, you're on stage all of a sudden and you just see like a thousand people and you're like, holy shit. And you just have to kind of keep your cool and just know exactly your five points on what you're going to talk about. You're going to go from the Sean Mendes joke to the Canadian joke to the, you know, this blah, 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 blah. And, uh, You just have to, you just have to play your cool and pretend you've been doing it for 10 years, even though I hadn't. And uh, it was incredibly nerve wracking, incredibly, incredibly nerve wracking. But like when I came off stage, I was like, wow, I think I did pretty damn good. I think I did pretty damn good. It was rewarding. It was rewarding. And, um, and you also, the the pressure was on because you're performing in front of these hotshot comedians. And if you suck well good luck getting a job or getting like a gig next time so I really there was a lot of pressure on me being like the best I could be and uh, but also just like having fun like when I got up there I just had fun I looked at the crowd my best my best strength is interacting with people in the crowd looking into their eyes kind of trying to read how they think and then go off on on their personal experience because that's the best thing you can do and 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 be local about it. Like if you're in Irvine, you know, talk about that city, talk about that town, uh, because everyone in that town wants to relate about and joke about their own city. So, you know, it's just about having fun and doing the best you can do.
0: Yeah, and it seems like you're personable just by doing that. Like if I was an audience member, like I would enjoy having a joke thrown at me or like I feel like a part of it in a sense.
1: Yeah, it's always fun when someone like points you out and goes, oh, she's smiling, and then you're like, oh, who's this guy? And then next thing you know, you're on a first date or whatever it might be. And then it just opens a whole can of worms that you never thought you were even going to get to. And if you're already comfortable with the crowd and the audience, then you can improvise and say things that I normally wouldn't even think about writing. Um, And it just... The improv on, on comedy shows is the best because it's the stuff that's the most natural and the stuff people want to hear and it just comes out so naturally.
0: Right, have you ever f- like froze on stage?
1: Um, there was a time when I, on one, of the, on one of the shows with Nikki, and it's funny, no one noticed, when I completely forgot my next joke and I said a joke that was just so bad. I thought, in my opinion, that I hadn't done in like a year. And I said that instead. And I was like, as I was, as I was saying it, I was like, this is not funny. <laughs> and uh, I came off stage and I was like, oh, God, that was not good. And they're like, what do you mean? I didn't. And I was like, never mind. Forget it.
0: No I, one I noticed.
1: Like, no one noticed. Did they That's laugh the thing. Like, no one knows your set but you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's not like they have a program that has all the jokes written out. Yeah.
1: Like, Connor will go from talking about... Sean Mendes to Big Dick Thursday. Like no one, (laughs) it doesn't, it doesn't go like that.
0: Right. But did the did the audience laugh?
1: Yes, they did. Okay.
0: That's and I mean
1: it's a crowd of a thousand people. If five percent of them laugh, that's still more people that are laughing than in these little dive bars I'm doing. So yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun.
0: And what's your rehearsals like for that? Like did you, so I guess once the smaller shows versus the bigger ones that you were on, um, did you have like sound checks and stuff? And then also your rehearsal like the night before and stuff like do you do it in front of a mirror to watch your facial expressions?
1: I, well, I never do it in front of the mirror and I, I voice memo it uh, and I'll typically call, I have like a couple of best friends that I'll call and I'll run it by them first. And I'll basically be on the phone with them, just running them from start to finish of the set. That's how how I do it. I call my best friend, I say, count me in. They'll go three, two, one, and then I'll go, hey, it's Connor, blah, 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 blah. And then I'll do the entire set from them start to finish, and then they'll give me pointers. I don't do it in front of the mirror, um, just because it's gonna be completely different when I do it on stage. I'm a very animated person, so I'm always moving. yeah. And there's no, there's never sound checks. There's never, I've never done a sound check for a show. Really. Enough. Oh,
0: interesting. So if you were to recommend three comedians that you personally like resonate with or find very, very funny, who would you recommend?
1: Uh, dead or alive. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: both. Or both. Like, do or both. Do whatever. Do um, My, I mean, my top three comedians are going to be Joan Rivers, uh, I'm real. I loved Michelle Wolf's new stand-up special, so I'm gonna pick Michelle Wolf, and um, I love, love, love Chelsea Handler. So there's three, and uh, they're all women. There you go.
0: That's crazy. Um, so the next topic that I want to get on is, I guess, your LA experience. So what was your reason for moving out to Los Angeles? Obviously, you said school. You touched on that a little bit, but take us through what the process was like. Did you know anyone when you got out there? Was it like a complete fresh start?
1: Um, Well, I came out here with, you know, I got an internship at the Larry King show and then I was working and then I got promoted to do all their social media and stuff, which was great. And um, I didn't know anyone. I knew like five people because the master's program had moved there. So I knew the five people in my program and, but then we all started to go our own way. So you kind of drift apart from them, but, no, I didn't really know anyone at all. And that, that was hard. But I knew more people in LA than I did in Boston because at least in LA, you know, I was connected with a lot of social, me- through social media. I like had met a lot of comedians online or followed a lot of people. It was so funny because you're following people in LA and then you get to LA and next thing you know, you're at the bar with them. And you go, whoa. And now, next thing you know, you're friends with these people you used to watch on YouTube or wherever it might be. So um, it was hard. It was really hard adjusting, but it was harder adjusting to Boston because at least in L.A., there was this huge kind of comedian culture and influencer culture, and I met a lot of people through that.
0: Okay. Okay. So how would you compare it to Toronto?
1: Well, I never really fully lived in Toronto. I, I lived in Aurora, and then I went from Aurora to London, London to, you know, Collingwood back and forth and all that. But um, the comedy scene here is just incredibly big. It's, there's lots, there's shows, like there's 10 shows a night. Um, There's always something going on. You know, the biggest comedians in the world are always performing. Like you can pull up any night, you know, you can see Joe Rogan, like basically every night if you want. I mean, it's basically like having comedian residencies in Vegas, like, but having them all the time. Um, you know, Toronto is great and all, and all my friends, you know, some of my, my family and a lot of my best friends are in Toronto still, and I love them dearly, but for what I want to do, I have to kind of be here. I always say being in, being, wanting to be an entertainer and you have to go to LA. It's like trying to become a farmer in Alaska. You just can't really do it. <laughs> you right. Know what I mean? Like it, it doesn't, you can't, it's hard. I mean, a lot of people have proved that theory wrong. Um, But a lot of those people are already more established. Like when I'm more established, I would love to be able to go back to Toronto, live there for half the year and then go back and forth. But right now I have to be here because every opportunity, casting, scripts, writing, producing, everything is done in the city. So it's really, especially when I want to do late nights. So everything, everything's here or in New York.
0: Right, right. What um, is the most difficult part about being in L.A.? Would you say it's furthest from your family and friends?
1: Yeah. I mean, now that we're in this, like, weird social isolation, quarantine, um, it's making me realize that, like, wait, maybe these relationships are actually important, and maybe having family and friends nearby is really important. So being alone is definitely the hardest part. And, um, you know, I have some really good friends in L.A., but nothing like the friends I've known for 10 years, eight years, six years. So I would say that is 100% the hardest part. And, you know, I'm in a very, very cutthroat competitive business. And, you know, name, not only being in comedy, but being a gay person in comedy. And I hate trying to use that as like a, eh, you know, it's hard for me, but it is. Like, try you try naming three gay standup comedians that aren't women, you know, it'll take you a long time. <laughs> so, no, I mean, I asked, all, I asked some of my gay friends. I'm like, name three stand-up gay comedians. And they're like, Ellen? I'm like, she's a le- Like, no. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of lesbian comedians. And, you know, good on them. But for some reason, we haven't embraced gay comedians yet. And uh, so it's tough. I'm in a cutthroat business. And it's very critical. And um, you constantly get shit on all day, every day. And of course it's hard to be in a place where your family and friends aren't there. So it is hard, it is hard.
0: And I guess the opposite to that question then, what would be the easiest part about being there?
1: Oh, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't have gone on the Nikki Glaser shows if I wasn't in LA. I wouldn't have gone to the Emmys and worked on the Emmys if I wasn't in LA. I wouldn't have worked on the Disney lot if I wasn't living in LA. I wouldn't have, you know, have the job I have if I wasn't in LA, you know? all of the opportunities I've had that have benefited my career are because I'm in this city. You can't, you know, you can't get these opportunities through being in somewhere else. You have to be here to get the opportunities. So that's why it's, it is so easy to just make connections, make friends and make opportunities when you're actually in Los Angeles. That's probably the easiest part.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. So What is the position you are right now? You said you're working for a production company?
1: Yeah, so I work for a production company in Santa Monica and I do literally everything from, you know, coordinating and liaisoning to, you know, helping writing on certain shows and helping to produce on certain shows. You know, I've done, I I worked on to date, um, the biggest ones at least were the Emmy's last year in September uh, and Little Mermaid Live. And then I did the New Year's Eve show with Steve Harvey um, in New York. Um, during which which didn't give me much of a Christmas vacation but I mean I can't complain working on New Year's Eve in New York City come on it's like a dream come true so yeah so I do I do various shows and you know you kind of get brought on to whatever they need you to do and uh, it could be anything I mean from everything from literally musicals to live events so yeah it's great Do you
0: fly from place to place a lot in the U.S. now that you're with that production company or other than the one New York experience you just mentioned?
1: Other than than New York, I haven't really been on. I mean, there was a show. We we did the Super Bowl pre-show, but I didn't go to Miami for that one. So our company, we're always flying all over the place. But for me, I'm pretty much L.A.-based. It's expensive to send people all across the world. So only when they really, really need me.
0: Right, right. So I guess to ask a little bit more of a personal question then, how do you make ends meet out there?
1: Did you, <laughs> well, I mean, did I work... you save
0: up before going out there? Or were you <laughs> just like, I'll just figure it out as I'm there?
1: Well, I mean, I've been working since I was, to backtrack this, I've been working since I was 15, 16. So I was always working and I, was, I, I came out of Western University debt-free. I, had n- I didn't owe any money because I paid everything. And I was working for the government in my, in my second, third, fourth, and then the year going into my master's program. And the government, let me tell you, they pay really well. So I've, I've been very fortunate to kind of, and you know, my parents have supported me through the Boston University program. They've helped me out there. But for the most part, it's been pretty much self-sufficiency. And I've been able to pave my way through this entire program. I was working two internships when I got to LA, and I was, then I was working two jobs and I've always been doing comedy on the side, which makes a little bit of cash here and there. I do sometimes, you know, product placement in videos and that gets you some money. Um, and now I work, I mean, I work nine to five now. And then on top of the videos and comedy, I do. So, you know, you just make it work. And, you know, I'm not out here buying Fendi, you know, pumps, but I am, but I am being able to afford my rent and you know I'm so fortunate where I get to live in you know a one bedroom apartment by myself in a very expensive city so I'm very very grateful but it's it's hard it's like you know it's hard but it's also it, it was it was like a strategic decision that I I didn't know I was subconsciously doing since I was 16 I was always working I was always saving I always knew I was going to go to the US and how was I going to afford it I got a couple scholarships in at Boston so I just you make ends meet, and you figure it out, and uh, yeah, it's, it's hard. There's not really an answer.
0: Okay, and I guess after Boston, so did you have an internship when you're at Western and Fanshawe in your fourth year, and then again when you were in Boston?
1: Um, so I didn't have any internships in Boston, but I did. Okay. I was I got an internship at the Larry King Show when I landed in LA. So I was doing LA. And I was just a generic production and research intern. And then that turned into a job when I finished doing all of his social media, all of his tweets. So I was literally tweeting as like an 85-year-old man (laughs) for a living. And it was very, very fun. And like, you know, I got to be very like young and current and, you know, tweet out to the Jonas Brothers happy birthday and do things that like an 85-year-old man would never normally do um, just to try to keep him current. And, uh, and then, and then I left that job to go to this, to this new production company. That's just a little more flexible.
0: Gotcha. So did you, so or he,
1: ended, so.
0: say that again? Sorry.
1: Uh, I also left because his show ended. So like there wasn't, he was an old, he's an older gentleman and he's been doing, he's an icon. He's been doing this for God knows how long. And, you know, I think he deserves to retire, let him retire in peace and, uh, I can, I can move on
0: yeah for sure for sure did you um so did you already have your internship set up though before you moved to LA
1: um yes I did yes okay I had I had applied I had applied during like right before Christmas vacation and then I yeah and then I got into it so when I moved in to LA in January I already had the job lined up which was like a huge reassurance because a lot of people I knew didn't have a job so they and and a lot of my internships were all paid and a lot of internships in Los Angeles are unpaid so I was like of the very small majority of people that were getting paid um just out of school
0: okay okay gotcha and for most of your stand-up gigs are you paid or at, like the first few maybe <laughs> not-
1: drink tickets you're paid in drink tickets if that, I mean, sometimes we we'll give you a little slap on the back, say so good work. Um, no, <laughs> no shows, like maybe like twenty five bucks, fifty bucks. The Nikki shows, obviously, we got paid by like the comedy clubs and stuff. But yeah, for for most shows, you're not making much. You're not making. So you only make a- money on tour. You only really make money if you're going on tour or if you're an opening act. But even then, you're only making like a hundred, a couple hundred bucks a night, if not even, not even.
0: So it's really just getting your name out there.
1: Getting your name out there. And then if you get brought in as a as an opening act, I mean, you're still making a hundred bucks a night or a hundred bucks a show and think you're only on for 10, 15 minutes. So that's not you do the math. That's not too bad. And uh, and then you get brought around everywhere.
0: That's true. That's true. So I guess now we're gonna hone in a little bit more on your networking and who you've got to work with and just share some of your experiences because I'm sure people are interested to know with you know everything you've done thus far. So how did you get the chance? Because I saw the the recording of the interview with Caitlin Bristow, and yeah. the country singer and Jason Jardick. Jardick, is my saying that right?
1: Tardik, Tardik, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That's crazy. So how did you get that opportunity? So are you a
1: fan? Of, are you a fan of The Bachelor?
0: I used to be, I stopped, but I feel like I stopped at the worst time because now everybody's watching it and nobody watched it when I was growing up. Cause I guess I was kind of young. Nobody really watched it when I was like in high school, but now it's like the thing.
1: Well, what's funny was that, um, I'm, I'm friends with the country singer, Brett Kissel and, uh, and he, he reached out to me and was like, Hey man, I'm coming to LA. You want to do a video with me Caitlin and Jason? And I was like, of course, let's do it. So How does he know them? They are like best friends because they were in he got Jason and Caitlin to do his music video. So they're like Okay. They're very good friends. Makes sense. And I I had never I had never seen The Bachelor until I knew I was doing that interview. Yeah. Okay. Okay, good to know. Thank until you make it. And um no, but they were the loveliest, loveliest people. Caitlin Bristow and Jason Tardick are the sweetest, sweetest people you'll ever meet, and their dog is the cutest. And Brett is the nicest man you'll ever meet, and they're sensitive and warm. And I got them drunk on television, and it was great. We had a we had a we had a ball. It was so much fun. And where was the recording taking place? We did it downtown L.A. and. Um, I was in like some like warehouse studio i basically i texted my friend maxwell uh, who's a photographer here in la and i was like i need your help i need a studio by tomorrow also brett gave me like a day's notice so i texted my friend maxwell and i was like hey do you have anyone do you know and he's like yeah, yeah yeah use this studio give me 50 bucks whatever it was we did we did the recording there it was this it overlooked the skyline it had this kick-ass beautiful couch and you know it looked like a really cool studio and that's where we did it it was in the fashion district yeah
0: wow and how was the conversation the vibes once the camera was off because I'm always interested to know like how camera ready are they and how like personable and real they are when they're off camera
1: so Jason and Caitlin the moment I met them were very sweet I met them, like, I came down to the lobby and got, got them with their dog, and um, I think the interview showed them exactly who they were, and I'm not just saying that, and I think it helped because the manager and the, pe- the publicist were actually locked out of the room, so when we closed the door and started the interview, we didn't realize that that door locked, and they couldn't come back in, so they were, like, knocking on the door the entire time, being like, it let us in, and we were already started the interview, so they couldn't. So their guard was completely down. They were personable, they were lighthearted, they were kind of raunchy, and Caitlin, you know, Caitlin says whatever comes to her mind anyways. So it was so much fun to just, I mean, like when the, when the cameras turned off, you know, we were taking Instagram selfies and we were talking about life and the dogs in LA and, and Nashville, it was like the cameras were still on. But that's, that's kind of what my whole mentality on reporting is. Like, I got, I wanted to do reporting because I was watching these E talk interviews, I was watching Entertainment Tonight, and I was like, these are bad. Genuinely, I was like, these are so, what are you wearing? Oh, no one cares. Like, like, shut up. You know what I mean? Like, let's, (laughs) let's, let's talk, you know, what's real in your life, what sucks, what works, you know, all of the stuff that people are really thinking about, and, you know, Interviewers now are, are, everyone can be an interviewer. And you know, it's kind of like citizen journalism. Everyone has a phone, everyone has a video, everyone has a camera. So find a way to make your your videos niche. And with that interview in particular, we just had fun and we just talked. And there was no direction that the interview needed to go. It was like, okay, this is the start, but there's no end. So let's just, the the, the interview was 40 minutes long and it got cut down to 15. So that just shows you, like, there was a lot of stuff that didn't get put in, just based on time.
0: Did you edit it yourself?
1: I did. I mean, I had my friend Edward. Edward shot it. And uh, he also helped me edit it because it was a pain in the ass. There were two camera angles. And uh, it was just, it was kind of a nightmare. But, you know, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun.
0: And did you use your gear, like your camera? Or did the studio already come with stuff? How did that
1: go? No, I use, so my friend Edward, I basically texted him and this had all happened within 24 hours. I texted him and was like, Hey, can you help me get this all stuff sorted out? He brought all of his camera equipment and I basically told him, I'm like, I don't even have money to pay. Like I'm not getting paid. No one's getting paid. This could be good for your portfolio. Can you help me out? And he's a great guy and he helped me out.
0: That's awesome. I love when people help each other out, and it just like I know.
1: people are just rare. good
0: people. Yes, I know, and they're just genuine. It's like not even like a, I scratch my back, you scratch yours. Like you genuinely want to help, and of course, for a portfolio, I mean, who who would say no to that? Everyone's trying to make it.
1: <laughs> I know. I I know. We're all we're all just trying to figure this thing out.
0: Yes, yes. And if those two weren't locked out of the room while you guys were were recording, do you think that they would have been any more filtered? Like, do you think that They would have the power to stop the video or like kind of make a face like oh it's like get back on track
1: they were well no i think everything we everything we had done in the video um was everything that was cut out was cut out after the fact they never were like oh let's not talk about this jason was kind of like oh i don't know if i want to talk about sex right now like you could tell he was sometimes a little more uncomfortable about it Right. But I mean, Caitlyn was like, "I'll tell you everything," and uh, <laughs> I was like, "Come on in." <laughs> uh, but I was also, I was—you have to go into it like your friends, and like, I don't want to expose them and make them look bad. I don't want anything. Like, I don't want—I don't want to be Perez Hilton in this whole situation. So you just—you just kind of have to read the room and figure out what works and what doesn't. Each interview is different. Like when I interviewed Little Yachty. I mean, you could tell from the moment I met him, he didn't want to be there. He didn't want to be interviewed by me. He's like, "Who's this white guy?" You know, he probably doesn't even know anything about rap, which he wasn't wrong. And so, uh, it's different for each interview.
0: Yeah, I remember watching that interview with Little Yachty and I was like, "I'm pretty sure I watched it with my brother." Like, this guy literally does not give two shits about being no, on camera I, right now answering all these questions
1: <laughs> and i was trying so hard but you know what it almost made it worse. like i should have just kind of played it down and that was it was a lose lose interview because it made him look bad and it made me look bad because it just looks like i didn't do my research when in fact i had and five minutes before you don't know this but five minutes before that little yachty interview his manager texted the approved questions that we had So we had we send the manager twenty questions. He had um, basically said no to all twenty of them five minutes before the interview. So we had to come up with an entire and you're in like a back alley of some like concert hall, and I had to come up with an entirely new, new questions, new games, everything. So all of that was
0: involved. Were you in panic mode? Oh my god!
1: You have you have like this and you have this huge you know he has this huge posse, this intimidating intimidating posse just standing behind the camera. Just like looking at me, like who's this kid? And I'm just like, oh, let this be over.
0: Wow. Have you had any other situations like that, or is that probably one of your worst?
1: Um. Oh my God. Yeah, I interviewed Tori Lane's. Believe it or not. Yes. So, but when I say interview, I say that lightly because five minutes into the interview, he must have been so high on cocaine or something. He. He came out, took his shirt off, pulled a dog out of nowhere. He had a dog in his hand, was <laughs> shirtless, and, and then just like ran off. He just ran off. So in the middle of the interview, he just like starts running off, taking his clothes, and then we're like, so "I'm standing there on the couch being like, "Is he coming back?" And, that's, and it never got And it never got published. I don't know who has the tapes. I really don't know who has the tapes. But he, basically, he came out, and it was like, "What's this setup?" sat down, took a shirt off, someone threw him a dog. They're throwing this dog backstage like it's like a piece of, like, it's like a candy bar. And <laughs> I mean, I have no respect for that guy after, after that. It was, in, it was insane. And that was crazy. in London Before he was like famous fame. that now he's really big. And I was like, I knew him when, and let me tell you, he was not a cup of sunshine.
0: <laughs> These stories are just absolutely killer. Yeah. <laughs> so do you have a manager or like an agency or anything? That I, do. You find I do. I do have a manager.
1: I do have a manager. I do not have an agent, but I mean, that'll come. That'll come.
0: And how, how did you go to seek that? Or did they come to you? Do you pay them per, like, how does that structure work out?
1: Um, I met my manager, um, just through a friend like we were we were working on something together and then they connected me and we hit it off and she's the best person in the world and uh she's more of like I would say a mentor first and then a manager second and uh it's not really like because I'm so early in my career and I'm not making a huge amount of money I think people need to know the difference between a manager and an agent an agent's taking like a a percentage per gig Um, and that's how the agents make money. So if I was making 500 per show, they would take 30% of that or whatever, 10% or whatever it might be. But the manager, it's kind of like your long-term companion. It's like someone who believes in your longevity and believes in you as an artist. And, you know, my manager is someone who I highly respect and respects me. And she's busy with other clients that are much more important than me. So I'm kind of there as you know. She believes in me. I have her support. She has my support, and she helps me out whenever I need. But it's not like yeah, she's not really taking any money from me because I'm not at that point in my career yet. Um, and yeah, that's that. That's that.
0: So how long do they work until they start? And I guess until you start making. Like real money, I guess, in another sense.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I when I start actually like pumping out, you know, going on doing more shows, going on tour, getting deals. I mean, she's there legal, like she goes through the contracts. If there's something that works, if there's something that doesn't work, that's what a manager is there for. But I mean, I'm not nearly at the stage where I fully need someone full time. And you know, managers are typically, you know, working with a lot of different people and they they usually provide you with different strategic goals and direction for your career. And I think that's why, where she comes in the most handy because she's been, she's been on big tours. She's done all this before. She can kind of guide me and give me direction on where to go next, but it's not on her to do that. It's on me, so.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. So um, I guess my next question is, how did you get the opportunity? Well, you kind of already said this, but um, working with Nikki, how did that experience as a whole go? Like, did you tour from city to city or did you just stay in LA for a one show of hers? Like, how did that go?
1: Yeah, so no, it was, it was six or seven shows all in the LA area. So we, we drove from LA to where, uh, you know, Orange County, Laguna, all, it's in around that area. Uh, Irvine was the area it was called. And um, it was cool. Uh, you know, we were driving in a car, like just like a regular car, us four, it was myself, um, Andrew Collins who's another comedian who is like Nikki's best friend and consistently opens for her and uh, Carlisle Forrester, who's another comedian who's on Nikki's podcast on Sirius. So all four of us were in the car every day you know we were doing two shows a night so we were doing a, excuse me we were doing a 7 p.m show and a 9 p.m show so we were with each other for long periods of time and it was one green room and you know we were just having a ball it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun
0: that sounds so fun like when your passion gets to mesh with someone else's passion you guys are all in the same ballpark and you're playing the same game like love hearing those stories
1: yeah i have nothing but good things to say about every single one of them i mean it's hard because i was so young and still am young and still starting out of my career and being in the, you know, sitting in the room with established comedians is very nerve wracking. And it's hard to kind of find the balance of, you know, if I'm fully myself, is it too much? How to pull back? How to, you know, if I want to be your, if, if we are going to be friends, you know, I have to be myself, but it's a really weird balance of, of, of those two things.
0: Right, right. Um, so are you on a work visa then? Being out I, in LA. Yeah,
1: I'm on I'm on a three year visa um, that I got from my master's program and that I can renew each year. So.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, how was that process like wow. getting it?
1: Uh, well, because I did my master's here and I did schooling in the U.S., you kind of Maybe get it easier? automatically.
0: Oh wow! Okay. So you really. I got like that.
1: Yeah, you have to you have to pay like four hundred dollars to apply and then you get it it takes about 4 months to get the actual or 3 months it takes 3 months to get the actual visa and then once you get it it's on a 1 year and then you renew every year and you can renew for 3 years max and then in 2 years time when that visa is done i'll probably go on a it's a, an o1 it's called an o1 visa is people that are artists or you know musicians comedians that tour and they're they're in the us for work purposes so I'll probably apply for that one when in 2021 or 2022 or whenever it is.
0: Okay, okay. Um, and I guess one of the last questions to wrap up many of these topics is your degree. How do you think that it was worth it for the schooling you did and the position you are in now? Was it the clubs? Was it the actual schooling? Was it the profs? Was it worth it? Was I think it, it putting that money in school worth it?
1: I think it comes down to you. At the end of the day, it's the person. You know, the person's going to get, if you want to get to LA, if you want to get to New York, you're going to get there. Whether you have the education, whether you have the, 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 the job or the club experience. I was just lucky to have, you know, I got, a, I got a, a degree and I got the opportunity to, you know, be on Western TV and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, you don't need that stuff to get to your, to your goal. You don't. I mean, my, my bosses don't even have university degrees and they're like 40 years old. They're not that old. Um, I have three degrees and have I used any of it? Not really. So, you know, you just, you just have to say you personally can, you can make it work and you're going to get there no matter what it is. And for anyone listening, you know, if you have a goal on trying to get somewhere, you might have to do something you don't want to do to get yourself there. And that's very normal. Like, I didn't want to do an extra year of master. Like, I didn't want to do a master's degree, but it got me to my dream job. And did I have to write two essays to get there? Yeah. Did I have to dish out a couple thousand bucks? Yeah. But I'm here. And my life is, I'm so grateful for everything. And I have so far to go. Um, But yeah, just just believe that you can do it, no matter a degree or a job or whatever it is.
0: Gotcha. And what is your typical nine to five look like right now? Like if I were to wake up as Connor, what would, what would my day look like?
1: Well, I mean, right now it's waking up at 12 p.m. and, you know. Okay, regardless, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I'm, you're like, this is the first time in a week where I am actually have my hair out, Clarissa, <laughs> so look at you. Um, but most days, you know, I wake up at 6.30, 7 a.m. I, you know, get a coffee in my blood, I get to work, it takes me about 30 minutes to get to work. I'm at work till about 6 p.m. And then typically what I'll do is I'll stay at work a little bit longer to do some writing and you know, do some editing for my videos. And then I'll actually drive to Hollywood or West Hollywood to do comedy shows. So I usually have a couple shows a week that I do. Um, and they're always around nine, 10 o'clock, eight o'clock, 8.30, nine, 10. So it, I go from like waking up to a job to my YouTube job, to then my stand-up job, and then I'm usually home at about 10, 30, 11. I try to go to the gym before I go to my first, like, perform my job, otherwise I'm just gonna look like a, you know, like a mess, and, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, some days, you know, you're just, it's too much, it's way too much, but, you know, I love what I do, and if I'm not at the comedy clubs every day, you know, people are gonna, you know, people are going to forget about you and you just want to get as many gigs as you can. And every day I'm trying to just show my face, meet other comics, become friends with people and work with people you like working with. And that's that's the most important thing. So, yeah.
0: So when do you eat? Because you never mentioned anything other than coffee. Like, do you get food on the way to each place? Because. <laughs>
1: You know what? I actually, I pack my lunch, weirdly enough. I do like the meal prep on the Sundays or the Saturday when I can. A lot of the time I'll just order lunch. Like I'll order sweet green or whatever it is or, you know. And then dinners, if I do have a show that night, I'll get it on the go. But most sometimes I can go home and eat first and then I'll go to do a show.
0: Okay, so you're pretty good then with not blowing all of your money on... Um- Let me
1: tell you, I I eat a lot. So I am... I am not one to shy away. From... No, but I mean, I do spend some money on food, let me tell you. Right now, I'm doing great because I'm just grocery Quarantine. shopping. And... <laughs> Quarantine, baby. That's let me so tell funny. you, if you wanted to save money, they should have done this earlier. <laughs> um...
0: <laughs> do you have a uh, car out there?
1: I do. I do.
0: Okay. I
1: haven't driven it in a week. I, I hope no one's stolen it. But yeah, it's, still, <laughs> it's, out, there. it's, but it's not, out there.
0: It's not the same rinky-dink one that you drove at school?
1: Oh my God, no, I don't even know who has that car. God bless them, whoever does, but uh, no, not me. I have a little SUV. It's really cute. It's really cute.
0: That is cute. Uh, So just some fun, lighthearted questions then to end us off. Uh, What are some of your hobbies? I know you mentioned the gym, but do you have, not that I don't really see you as a knitter, (laughs) someone that knits, but.
1: (laughs) Uh, I love cooking. I think cooking is my hobby. I think I love to bake and I love to cook. Um, but I mean, it's funny because I see comedy and I see YouTube and all of that as a hobby. So, you know, my nine to five is a little more rigid and a little more, um, I'm, I'm in less control of, of that work. So then getting to do, you know, parodies or comedy is almost like my hobby. Um, until I do that full time, it will always be my hobby. And, uh, what else? I mean, I go, I, you know, I just, I love hikes and I love, I love the beach. I love, 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 love the beach. So I'm, uh, I'm there quite frequently.
0: And your go-to beverage, alcoholic beverage, because I see you have Jack Daniels on your fridge.
1: Uh, Do I? Oh, yes, I do. (laughs) I I have three bottles of Jack Daniels. Um, no, actually that's all from Brett Kissel's interview. I just haven't finished it. (laughs) And, uh, um, uh, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm a red wine till I die kind of person. Really? I love red wine with a couple ice cubes, just a little chilled, and uh, I'll be happy. Red wine or like a white cloth.
0: Were you into uh, red wine or wine in general back in Western when they had Wine Wednesdays? Oh, that a- <laughs>
1: yeah. I, though I used to love white wine. I, lo- I used to love Pinot Grigio, and now I, I think it's way too sweet. And uh, I just drink like, a shitty $5 Melbeck or a Cab And I've never looked back. <laughs> <laughs> so it's always, you're, you're, you have, you love this alcohol, and then you have one horrible night on it, and then you'll never drink it again. Yes. Like, that was me with vodka. That was me with white wine. And I can't, I can't drink it anymore. How about you? What's yours?
0: Uh, I would say... Sauvignon Blanc is probably my favorite I'm a white okay. white every time I try red girl. I'm just yeah every time I try red I'm like today is gonna be the day I'm, I'm gonna like red today and then I'm always like no why do I think that my taste buds are gonna change in two months like maybe one day maybe I want to like red wine because I feel like a lot of older people I'm around for like holidays always have red as opposed to white and you don't want to ask for white when everyone's drinking red
1: I know you don't want to be that person that opens the bottle when the, when the bottle's not open. I know yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. Uh, it almost feels like disrespectful that you're not drinking like what
1: the table is oh, so drinking. Are you
0: Italian? A Croatian and a little bit Polish, Asian. but I mean, okay. yeah, European. <laughs> red
1: red wine must be in your blood somewhere.
0: Yeah, like a, most, like my thing. my family would drink red in any occasion, yeah. not white. Never was. You'll get
1: there, you'll get there, you'll get
0: there. <laughs> I hope, I hope. So the last question I usually end off these interviews with is, are you happy with the path that you're taking now? Is there any advice you would give to um, maybe someone else that wants to follow a similar path to you as a creative in the industry?
1: Ooh. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> I would say, I would say I am very happy. I'm happy with where I am. I'm happy with where I'm going. Um, it's going to be a long, long journey ahead, which makes me, I already have wrinkles thinking about it. But um, yeah, it's, it's, life is good. I, you know, I, I have a great apartment. I have good friends. I have good family. And uh, you know, every, every year, every month, you just try to one up yourself and just try to beat yourself. Don't put too much pressure on yourself. I'm really bad. My, my best advice to someone is, you know, don't pressure yourself too much to get the video done as soon as you can, or, you know, you have to get there by this week, or, you know, by Friday, I need to have a thousand subscribers, or whatever it might be. You know, that pressure is insanely hard on your creativity, and it's going to give, that the pressure is no good. And when you when you're in competition, with yourself and with other people, it's really hard. And just take yourself and, and do what you love and it will, it will work itself out and stay consistent. And you know, my, my manager always, always, always tells me that you, know, you have to kind of be like a, a racehorse. You have to have blinders up. You can't be looking left. You can't be looking right, only straight ahead. Because the moment you look right or left, you eat shit and you just fall. So you just have to stay focused on yourself do what makes you happy, and um, and time, time will time will tell. It'll be fine.
0: Amazing, amazing. Well, do you want <laughs> to plug your social media links for everyone?
1: Ooh, yeah. If you are listening or watching this, I apologize for my stubble. It's uh, very gross, um, <laughs> but uh, you can follow you can follow me at Connor melbeth It's spelled C O N N O R. Last name is M A L B E U F. I uh, I would like to think I'm related to Shia LaBeouf in some capacity, but I am sadly not. And uh, yeah, check out my YouTube. And if I ever have a comedy show in your area, you can check it out at ConnorMalboeuf.com.
0: Amazing, amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on today's episode. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Um, and sharing your story with everyone on the platforms. If you guys could give this uh, episode five stars, that would be greatly appreciated. There will be timestamps in the episode show notes and the summary of the episode. So you can kind of follow along with where your interests lie with Connor's story. And yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you took something away from this episode with Connor. What I definitely took away from it was to dream big and take the leap, especially when it comes to your passion. It may not necessarily be to pick up and move to Los Angeles, but to find a way to pursue what you love. Don't forget to check out the episode notes to find the timestamps and the episode summary for all social media links. Thanks again. and I'll see you guys all in my next episode.